Welcome to Inquiring Minds, the Writing and Literacy SIG podcast. My name is Sarah Jarasa, and I'm here with Stacey Hansel. We will be the hosts for today's episode. The Writing and Literacy SIG podcast aims to highlight scholarship, discuss contemporary issues, and engage in, in conversation with SIG members and the greater writing and literacy field. Through a robust dialogue, we hope to ignite nationwide discussions amongst faculty and graduate students concerning topics that are timely and pertinent to the scholarship of writing, literacies, and the broader field of education. Today's episode will be centered on the topic of play literacies and how our panelists see play taking shape in the field, as well as where play might be headed in the future. So before we begin our discussion, uh, let's take a few minutes for introductions. Hi, yes. So my name is Cassie Brownell, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, or OISE, in Toronto, Canada, at the University of Toronto. Um, and some of the things that I've been doing recently is some radio play with um, some middle grades youth in New Orleans um, at, who are producing uh, different segments um, with everything uh, from topics like pop culture, their favorite shows like WandaVision or Squid Games, to other sorts of topics, including things around climate, the climate crisis, um, the importance of pronouns, and also um, things like Black Lives Matter and COVID-19. Yeah, I'm Karen Woolwind. I'm in the uh, Literacy, Culture, and Language Education Program in the Curriculum and Instruction Department at Indiana University. And my work has been um, in play for decades. <laughs> um, I, I taught through play as a kindergarten and first grade teacher um, in my classrooms. And, um, you know, in my literacy research, I've been arguing, again, decades, uh, for play as a literacy to get that uh, recognized and um, so my latest research is moving into play as inquiry. And I'll talk about that in a little while, but um, just more and more I'm, I'm by myself theorizing and, um, and looking back and trying to, to figure out how do, we, how do we move this forward? How do we make play happen in classrooms for people? Good morning, uh, Kim Lenters. I'm from the University of Calgary and I'm in the um, uh, Department of, of Language and Literacy Education. Um, my work um, I, I, at the scholarly level really has um, engaged with play pretty much from the start, thinking about um, collaborative composing assemblages for kids. Um, and so I was working for a long time with um, improv and um, it, you know, and older children helping them to really think through play um, and, and um, that oral and embodied language. I think um, one of the things that I have been working hard at, at or maybe at addressing is bringing back to multimodality the notion of multi-modes. I think we really got off on the visual side of multimodality and we've really forgotten the you know the the oral and the embodied um etc so really taking up socio-material approaches to to really think 
um, about multimodal literacy through play. Um, so currently working with, with a, a younger group of, of, um, of little people, young people, and, um, and thinking about play in early literacies. Hi everyone, good morning. It's so good to see or hear, maybe for some, um, everyone here. Um, I'm Haney Yoon, <clears throat> sorry. I'm a professor at Teachers College and I'm in the Department of Curriculum and Teaching. Um, and it's been a sad semester for me because I just got off sabbatical and had a lot of play and now it feels like a very jarring rude awakening <laughs> to be back. Um, so I've been doing a lot of work um, around play and literacy in K through two classrooms and spending a lot of time with kids. And I think these last two years, like everybody else, I kind of had to pivot. But I think at the same time, I've been thinking about play and social imagination throughout, like from childhood to adulthood. And so one of the um, projects that I'm working on right now, which kind of came from a pandemic envisioning um, and the limits of it is a project on like memory and nostalgia and identity. Um, and it's adults actually looking back and thinking on their play and pop culture um, interests and then what that means as they kind of think about it and look back on it. And so I think it's like one of those things that I've been thinking about how memory is not necessarily accurate. Um, but a lot of times the things that the stories and the ideas that we create from those memories is actually really fascinating and the connections that we make with each other. So that's, um, that's with my doctoral student and colleague, Olu, who has been, who like, we've been thinking a lot about like the generational gaps of play and pop culture, and then the times that it converges and the times that it diverges. So that's been a really fun sort of like it started as a passion play project and has been really interesting for me now. Hey, I'm Beth Buckholtz and I am an associate professor at Appalachian State University and trying to figure out how to say this in a few words. Uh, in the midst of COVID, like all of you, life changed and teaching, research, all of that became something different. And so we have a literacy clinic on our campus that um, has a long history that moved online and has become essentially a play space. And I've been a big part of figuring out what that might look like. Um, I have been, I led sessions for a year and a half with kindergarten through fifth graders um, in what we're calling literacy cast. And it's an hour long kind of literacy engagement with children and in-service teachers and also pre-service teachers. Um, so really interested in sort of how the virtual spaces offer, offer opportunities for our teacher candidates and our graduate students to get to watch us as faculty interact with children um, and to model and to do small groups um, and to learn alongside our graduate students and teacher prep folks um, and learn alongside children. Really that's at the, the central part of this is helping um, having us learn what our what were children doing at home in the midst of COVID? How were they making sense of things? They were turning the recording, right, returning the recorders on themselves, audio recording, video recording, sharing that with our community. Um, so I'm still digging through that data as we continue it, right? So it's like another iteration of that. It's an after-school version of that now. Um, so just taking me down a path I hadn't expected, but learning a lot alongside colleagues um, and docs or grad students and also children. Thank you all for being here. We are so, so fortunate um, to be able to have this time together. Um, so now we hope to have a little bit of an informal conversation um, around play. And so we're gonna pose uh, the question 
how do you see play taking shape right now within um, the literacy field? And please feel free to, to jump in and share any thoughts you may have on that, on that question. I'll jump in just quickly first, um, just to say that a few years back, um, I think with a, a, a digital literacies chat, uh, the play revolution was born with a chat, uh, with a tweet, I think from Haney, right? And, um, and from that, we ended up having a teacher's college record special issue on the play uh, revolution co-edited with uh, uh, Jay Teal. So, you know, that's a that's just a quick shout out to check out that issue. There's a lot of great scholarship in there. But, but the gist of that was that we need to, uh, you know, really recenter play in the curriculum in a way, in ways that uh, impact social justice and it's across the lifespan and um and all that and we have i know all three of the other guests and i were involved in um in the play revolution conversations and in the in the issue and i'll just uh let that maybe be a spark that we can get started with I don't know, maybe I should jump in as the person who wasn't involved in that special. <laughs> I am, um, in some ways, I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit later coming to the game, maybe as someone with, you know, earning a doctorate later in life, it, that, that happens. Um, but I think, I, I think for me, what I'm noticing is, or, or maybe it's more what I'm wanting, um, is I think play has been an accepted um, mode of learning um, in kindergarten and preschool. And it hasn't, you know, we, 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 we still have that bias that, you know, you hit grade one and it's all about the serious academic learning. And, um, and I, I think that that has really kind of cemented itself in elementary schools and, and you know, through um, curriculum as imposed um, through, you know, governing bodies. And so, so that really has, that's really my passion. And, and, I, and I believe I'm seeing that, too, uh, you know, amongst, um, uh, you know, the research worldwide that we really, we, we really do need to be thinking about how play um, works in those more serious learning spaces, because it is, it is we, we all know this, we, we learn best when, when we're in that playful flow, right, that, that kind of mindset. So, so really thinking about what it is then in, in these, um, you know, as we move into more academic spaces, how, how those aspects of play can really um, be part of the whole learning assemblage. And I'll just make a quick piggyback on that to say that in preschool and K-1 classrooms, play is under uh, stress and really endangered um, in those classrooms as we see that that oppositional idea about play and work and there's just no time for that especially now with COVID learning loss you know it's just we're just really seeing an opposite pressure so it's it's really important that we um, reframe play a little 
for classrooms. Uh, you know, and it's, it, I think the, the, where I've been thinking about the Sentinel, how do we make this more palatable or, or acceptable um, to, to people who have those decision-making um, powers? And so really um, thinking through notions of, of you know, th those binaries of guided play and, uh, and free play, right? And, and uh, thinking again about how to mix that up and, and, and what it is, you know, what it is that, that teachers can be doing to be shaping playful spaces for learning. Um, so I, I'm, I guess what I'm, I'm really sort of passionate about is really figuring out how we make those inroads um, you know, throughout throughout uh, children's school years, but um, particularly in, in holding the space for for the early years. I think just to piggyback off of that, I have been. I think you know we've all been in conversations with people and in the field, as well as teachers and policymakers or whatever around the absence of play, um, and I guess. I think Kim going along with what you were saying, I've been thinking about like when is play present um, and what are the conditions that allow that to happen? Um, and I think all of us have done work where children are just like playing things despite like whether or not there's an official time called play, whether or not there's spaces for that. It's just like so interesting to see like where the um, corners of play are actually taking place and taking shape. Um, and a lot of times it's like without adults, right? And a lot of times it's even within the confines of play. And I just remember like the first project that I did, I was definitely like on this mission, like scripted curriculum is so terrible. It's like ruining children's literacy. It's like making a mess out of like all the times that children can play with literacy and social relationships and all of that. Um, and I went into the site with that idea um, and I think I came out of it realizing that that's not the issue, right? It's like whether or not we recognize our value when that play is happening and they're doing it, whether it's scripted, whether it's constrained, whether it's narrowed, that there are these spaces of play. And I just remember when I was doing that um, special issue for Teachers College Record that Karen was talking about, I... Um, I feel like I myself had a lot of fun just thinking about horror movies and Michael Myers and the genre of like something that I was not engaged in before, you know, and it kind of like made me think about like, if I take the play of children, whenever they're doing it, whether it's like writing workshop, whether it's math time, whether it's recess or whenever it is, and like take it really seriously, that it kind of like informs my own playful engagements with the world. And I think that was like, really fascinating and an interesting exercise for me. And I've been thinking about that in classrooms, right? Like if children bring in things that they're really interested in um, and they'll do it all the time, like how seriously are we willing to take that up? Um, or are we gonna dismiss it as cute or be like, that's not, we're not gonna actually pay attention to that here. And that maybe there's something in it when we can dig in further with the things that children are really interested in. So I feel like now I'm like a um, Michael Myers scream horror movie semi-expert. <laughs> and it's like given me a new appreciation for those things that I didn't appreciate or even like before. Jesse, you are the, the queen of GIFs. So here we need Jeff Goldblum saying, and, you know, play finds a way. You know, play leaks out. Yeah, exactly. So, 
Yeah, no, I think that's great. Well, and I always think, Karen, about like, I love your piece that you wrote about like the under the radar play um, with the Star Wars where the kids were rolling paper. And in one instance, it is an electric eel, as the, but as the teacher turns their back, it becomes a lightsaber because lightsabers are weapons and they're not permitted in school. Um, and so I was really thinking about that with sneaky play. And I was thinking a bit like Kim, you mentioned um, the need to also think about bodies and language. And I think about Zoom, right? Like as adults who are in Zoom meetings, like the back channel chats that happen and the sneaky glances at your colleague as you like bring a little bit of humor, which I think Haney, you're so good about bringing humor into um, and emphasizing humor as like a role of play. Um, into like the Zoom chats. So like even how we have adapted our play as adults in these sorts of spaces to still have that sense of like collegiality um, and in, yeah, leaky play. Do you mean leaky play or sneaky play? <laughs> um, and so I think that that's like really interesting. Um, I also, uh, Mardi Gras just happened in New Orleans and I wasn't there, which is incredibly sad to me. Um, but I was thinking about it in terms of like how much joy the city of New Orleans like had in the last uh, couple of weeks with all of the parades and like how over the top um, costumes became and the role that like costumes play at Mardi Gras quite generally. But like in terms of how in the wider world, typically Halloween is the time when it's like sanctioned for adults to wear costumes unless it's like cosplay um, or engaging in um, these other particular kinds of spaces. But at Mardi Gras, like this is a time when like various people like adorn all sorts of costumes and spend so much time crafting those often by hand. Um, and so I was just thinking about that too, in terms of like the embodied play, the adult play. And I think especially because Mardi Gras was on hold last year, they didn't get to have the same sorts of events um, that they typically do. And like how in the time like of less, I guess, cases of COVID where people felt more comfortable to be like celebrating and enjoying um, playtime on the streets again together um, following the pandemic. Um, but I also like in terms of thinking about play in the pandemic, I think that we have fantastic colleagues across the globe really focusing on this, um, but especially the folks from um, the UK, like John Potter and Kate Cowan. Um, I was really lucky to attend um, the symposium that they had earlier this year. Um, and the various ways that they were talking about everything from, you know, forts that were built in homes and how entire living rooms would be um, transformed, not just for a couple of hours, but for days and weeks into these different sorts of playscapes um, that young people and adults alike might snuggle into to read a book or to create a space that was just their own, especially as like they mentioned, like playgrounds lockdown. So spaces that were, again, sanctioned for kids play no longer existed and kids were made to stay at home. And so they created their own sorts of spaces that they could have as a place for their play and a private place for their play. Because I think that a uh, conversation I was having um, just yesterday with some folks was about the ways in which play really affords young people a chance to engage in private conversations with one another or to think differently together, both with their bodies um, and like work out and negotiate things. Beth, I always think about your piece with the red and gray teams, the red and gray teams um, and how they negotiated those things um, as well um, with little adult interference um, and how that maybe is something that is harder to find in the time of the pandemic and social distancing. Um, so I think those are some things that all of you are making me think about across time. Also
Beth, you bring us to one of the questions that Stacy and I were thinking about of just thinking about all of the ways that play was taking shape during the pandemic and during our time that we're still in COVID. Um, but how are you seeing those experiences impacting school spaces and the notion of play within those uh, educational spaces? One of the interesting things that, that um, we saw just as we were re-entering this school year um, were teachers who, who had already been thinking about play, they'd been experimenting with story workshop, um, who realized that they were, as grade one teachers, they were going to be seeing a group of kids who hadn't been to kindergarten um, and potentially hadn't even been to preschool over that, you know, the, the previous year and a half. And they were recognizing that um, what, you know, what was possibly gonna happen through their school board is that these kids would be put into a special class. And then, you know, there would be this makeup time to get them up to speed with, with the kids who had been to kindergarten. Um, and they were like, okay, no, what we're going, we have to do something about this. We have to ensure that our grade one classrooms are ready to meet those children all of our grade one classrooms and 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 their their um, their answer to that problem was play. Like, how are we going to make our, our our classrooms more playful? So I thought that was really interesting because I think it was it's very much against the grain of what um, you know the the uh, mantra worldwide about you know hitting it hard and hitting it fast, getting those kids up to speed. Um, so, so it's a small sliver of hope, I feel, um, in, 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 in perhaps what's happening in, in other places, but interested to hear what's happening in, in all of your locales. Um, that's, that so connects with something I'm writing at the moment. <laughs> um, I was charged to write a, a piece on play and early literacy, and this gets back to how am I going to write about something about play in a time that seems so serious, almost dire in the world? And, um, and so the whole beginning of this piece is about the ways that children, um, as reported in the media, played during the, during the pandemic to make sense of masking, injections, social distancing, all these things. It, it just back to, you know, leaky play and Haney's concept, it, it comes back to that. It, we, they found a way to do these kinds of things. And I think there's a stark contrast in the discourse around schools on, we have so much learning loss, we need to get back to these kids caught up, we need to boom, boom, boom. And there's not a recognition that children play their understandings of the world around them and to move, move forward and they do it collectively. And so playing at home by yourself, as opposed to playing in school where you can negotiate what something means and you can, you can try it on and you can try alternatives. What if something else, what, what, you know, what if I could gain some control over that? So I think the first thing we ought to do is just allow children that space with others somewhere on the playground. Let's just make room for it, not co-opted by adults. But um, anyway, that, that just just struck a chord with me, Kim. I had to <laughs> talk about that. I'll let others talk about what they're actually seeing. 
I was just going to mention though, Karen, um, when I was uh, getting ready today, I was listening to NPR and there was a reporter from Ukraine who was talking about, you know, all of the terrible things that are happening there, but how someone said, but you should also look for the joy. And they talked about how they like noticed all of these kids playing, like in the same time that like, there's so much destruction happening in um, various cities uh, that there were kids playing in the street and kids sort of going about their um, everyday play in the ways that they otherwise would. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that builds so much on the different ideas that we've talked about. Um, I also wanted to share, um, so Toronto, still not in schools. So most of my observations of play have been kids in mass at recess. Um, Canada and Toronto is a different place in a lot of sense, in a lot of ways compared to the rest of the um, world. Um, but I um, was doing a project uh, related to the first six weeks of school and teachers kind of noticing as they were returning back. Um, and one of the teachers that participated was a kindergarten teacher. Um, and this wasn't this year, 2021, but in 2020, they talked about um, teaching kindergarten and how excited um, these young kids were to return to or to come to school to for the first time in mass with like plastic partitions up at their desks and how their parents were just irate and like so upset because this isn't what kindergarten was supposed to look like. This isn't what kindergarten was supposed to feel like. But she talked about how like for these kids, this is all that they know school to be. And so they were just so excited to be in school, to be with their new friends and to be playing in ways that even if they were distanced, they were not necessarily knowing anything different. Um, and I think that a lot of times we bring like our adult eyes onto a situation or our nostalgia in the ways that Haney talked about some of her other work um, of what we expect play to be um, without necessarily um, considering how kids are playing at that time and what realities that they are creating and living with um, in those moments as well. I think you guys are both making me, Karen and Cassie, thinking about like the complexities of play, right? Like I think we've all in our work have tried to define it and all collectively decided we're not going to define play. Um, and I was just, um, you know, going back to Karen's point about how children are really living with these very harsh realities and trying to figure out what that means in the scope of play and how play kind of navigates that for them. And I think that's been making me think about how play isn't always just a thing that's fun or just like a surface level definition that we have of play, right? But that play is also can be sad, right? It can be hard. It can like lead to tension. Like how many times have we seen children fighting like during play and, you know, kind of, I've, I like think back to when I was like in elementary school and how I would like swear off people forever because they like tick me off when we we're playing something right and so I think that play can also like break a lot of things right relationships ideas stuff like that and um it like I was trying to look this up when Cassie you were talking but um this book um it's called laughter notes on passion I don't know if people um if folks know about that but it's basically like the 
really complicated affect of laughter, right? And then it's not just because we think something's funny. Like sometimes we laugh because it's like the one thing that's going to prevent us from crying, right? And I think about how sometimes I laugh because I'm like uncomfortable or nervous or don't know like what to do with that emotion. And there's something about that act that isn't like a singular thing. And I feel like that with play and especially now, right? With COVID, with wars, you know, with just like a lot of different things that are happening in the landscape that play can mean a lot of things for people that it's not just what play is but what it does um, for kids for us um, I think about myself too like I just watch endless amounts of tv if I'm like really stressed out I don't know what to do <laughs> and so it's like this like this escape right that happens in play that isn't always just about joy but it's also a lot of things mixed in together Amy, that makes me uh, think about uh, something I've been working on, and that is play is inquiry. And if we, and this gets back to sort of the reframing, it's so important to recognize those serious aspects of play. And so uh, if we're thinking about how children are using play to explore worlds and to make sense and to, you know, to understand what a story is about by playing the story or, you know, just all sorts of things. Um, we, can, we can also be thinking about what does play do for researchers? So um, with uh, my colleagues, Mia Perry and Carmen Medina, who have been studying and studying embodiment, um, and play, you know, the three of us are thinking about uh, play as a method of inquiry. And I know Beth has, is part of a, a book that we're writing too. So she's been thinking with this as well. Um, but it, it opens up and unsettles things that seem quite fixed and unassailable. And so if we, if we think through that lens and think of play as something very different than just a pastime. Um, you know, it, it gains some stature in schools. It's a way to conduct science. It's a way to understand, you know, all parts of the curriculum. Um, but it also I'm really hesitant to, to put forward arguments that are play in the service of some other curricular area because suddenly it gets co-opted by teachers and schools and agendas. So I, I want to also just make space to say, you know, let's think through play as a lens to unpack the world. I really love that. I can't wait to dig into that. <laughs> Dr. Wilwyn, you kind of mentioned something that we were also thinking about uh, in regard to notions of equity with play. Um, so how are in your all of your work, uh, are you seeing uh, play access um, influencing aspects of equity um, for children, adolescents, even adults too? Um, this is the response to adults is that today on social media, because I spent too much time on it, someone shared about how we like prioritize like breaks for children and like 
summer break, spring break, recess. And then as adults, we say, please work 60 hours a week and please take two to three weeks out of the whole year. Um, and so I think the ways in which, like, if we're thinking about play related to leisure, like how that doesn't necessarily exist um, for a lot of adults, but I couldn't help but laugh because I was like, oh, that's like the first thing that popped in my mind when you asked about adults was the lack of play we often are permitted to have um, in our downtime. And I do think it's also, it's the first thing to go, right? As soon as there's a crisis in, uh, in any way, a crisis in our, uh, you know, economically in our homes or, or a crisis like COVID in schools or a, a reading crisis, play is the first thing to get turfed, right? Whether it's free play at recess or, or more playful approaches to, to learning. Um, so it just in terms of equity, then I think that those things, those the pressures of those kinds of, of things bear much more heavily on um, diverse populations, right, or, or, or those that have been traditionally marginalized. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's a very, very real issue and um, one very much worth um, sort of just highlighting. I think for people about you know where our priorities go in times of crisis. I think also this so the play as a social justice issue is something I've been arguing for for quite a while. Um, if we look at who are the children that get to play in school with other children and have a rich inquiry-based curriculum, it's the affluent school well-resourced schools while the under-resourced schools heavily surveilled schools are the ones where we are just going to get down to work and usually um, this play work dichotomy is something that you know speaks to your point kim that plays the first thing to go because we have too much and it's to get these children you know up to speed back you know Cross the gap, the whole gap arguments, you know, all of that comes to play here. So um, I think, again, if we are, if we're, we're looking at this as a social justice space, it really changes the conversation. Something we've been thinking about is the stuff of play, um, which like in the midst of COVID children, many children were surrounded by the stuff that they play with um, and they had access to it. It's sitting right, right next to them, whether that's siblings, right? Or friends or stuffed animals or video game. Like, so in what ways that, what were the affordances of being at home and having access to that stuff that then could become part of digital book of kind of producing stuff that could be shared with others. And then when kids come to school, how all that stuff gets left in most cases, that stuff gets left at home. And in some cases that's sort of equity issues around who gets to bring stuff to school. And I know Karen's done a lot of work around that, just thinking about in preschool, who gets to bring toys to school, what preschools allow that, what preschools say, no, we're not gonna have things. Um, and just thinking about the ways that every child when they were home could hold up their thing that means the most to them in front of the screen and be like, this is, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I love. This is what I play with. Um, and trying to find ways 
to think about what does that look like in a school setting when you don't have your stuff um, and teachers can provide right other ways to play um, other tools but um, just children's belongings um, and the ways that those are identity objects for them and and how they use those at home and how what we can think about in terms of school spaces too one of my everybody no no go ahead Karen one of my doctoral students, um, Rebecca Horace, has had for her uh, dissertation research during COVID uh, established play dates between children, and they just brought their stuff up to the screen and they played across screens. I think we don't understand well enough, you know, how children make that kind of thing happen. Um, but it was very, you know, seamless for them. And she was thinking, oh, I'll just do this, you know every other week, they were like, no, when's the next time we get to do it? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think, I, I think the, the, the value of stuff to play with really can't be understated. And the, the space, if we just, if we find plays, ways to make that space happen, play is going to come there. And Haney, I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I, I think I just had a hard time thinking through this. And I feel like I've been thinking a lot lately about the um, like the dichotomy that we set up between like structure and flexibility, right? And that play goes on the scale where the most flexible <clears throat> space means like the most authentic play is happening and the least and the most structured play means that authentic play isn't happening. Um, and I've been thinking about how that might not necessarily be the case. And I know it's like a bad word to think about play and structure, or maybe it just seems like opposites, but I realized that um, I lately I've been thinking about children of color in spaces that are more affluent, right? Where there is a lot of progressive ideals, where it's about like children's ideas and interests emerging, where it may seem and look like it's like kind of more children have agency over all of this space and they do all of these things. And I realized that sometimes, um, like some children of color that I've seen in those spaces, like really struggle, right, with that, um, with the parameters of that, because it's not familiar to them, right? I think about like, when I grew up, like my parents were very structured, they're like typical Asians, like I hate to say that, but like, just very structured, right? And so for me, like structure was a way for me to, ex like, you know, it was a way for me to kind of survive in the world, but it was also like the point that was familiar for me where I could maybe expand or grow or be more creative or whatever it is. And so, um, so I think like for every, for lots of children, I think those parameters and spaces are going to look very different or the conditions that set them up are going to look really different. And so I've been thinking a lot about that with like equity, like even if children have access to spaces of free and flexible play, does that necessitate that equity, like equitable opportunities are happening, right? Like I see Karen shaking her head, yeah. And so I've just been like thinking about that dichotomy and maybe setting it up as a dichotomy is probably not the right thing to do. I don't have the answer for it, but I, that's like a thought I've been having. Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, so play is not a panacea and you can't just, say, oh, let the children play and they, they go off and all will be well. Children are going to play what they know. In my world, in my head, that is a nexus. They, they have a nexus that's established. 
they will enforce that nexus through their play because that's how they're playing their world. But if you bring children together that, that have different visions or different ways they want to have alternatives to the current, maybe regimented nexus that they're living in within schools, they'll find ways together to uh, fight through that. So it's not going to be this harmonious, oh, let's just all go over here. No, no, people are going to fight for what they think is their understanding. And, you know, so again, you have this place where play is not innocent and it's contested. So when you open up this space for play, it's really crucially important that there are uh, caring adults that can intervene or mediate effectively and well. And that is a huge ask, I think, of teachers at this moment. So, um, so I, I'm all, I always, you know, give with one hand, take away with the other. I mean, let's make space for play, but let's not make it, let's make, not make an assumption that they're just going to be able to be harmonious. If they're, if there's play happening on the playground, when the children come in, they're going to be full of complaints and problems and things to solve. And, um, and this was something when I was teaching, you know, they would come in and they would have all these ruptures that had happened. And so many teachers would just try to smooth it over, say, you're sorry. Okay. Now let's get down to math or, um, or, you know, in my classroom, we would make time to sit down and have either small groups or large group meetings, depending on how big a rupture it was. And we'd work, we'd work on it. Um, but it's so you make time for what you value. So, but again, on the heels of the pandemic and everything else teachers are charged with, I also am very sympathetic to, to what people are going through at the moment. So I think that's really, Oh, sorry, Haiti. Did you want to go? No, I was just thinking what the important point too is that like, I like that point, Karen, because when play becomes like racialized or gendered, it's almost like we do have to intervene in those spaces, right? It's not always like, and yeah, it's not an innocent thing that we can kind of push to the side because we made it flexible and they'll negotiate that on their own because <clears throat> that's not always the case, right? Go ahead, Cassie. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think that like, you know, in in that sense, like play is also a tool to like teach people about equity, right? Like I'm sure we have all had conversations in classrooms about like what is fair, what is just, and like, sorry, I'm just going to keep coming back to that piece in JLR that I love so much. But I think like thinking about like the time and the space that was permitted in that classroom to like help to work out, uh, like what are these rules? And I think even thinking about, you know, um, I think thinking about the nexus that kids draw on as we were talking about Karen, like a lot of kids will play school. They'll play like caretaking and like they have particular rules about how a dog or a child or a student acts versus how the teacher acts and like the ways in which they take up power in their play in ways that they might not otherwise have power and authority. I was thinking a bit about Beth, what you mentioned in terms of kids slipping books into their or notes into their books that they were sharing with one another as a means to like 
create opportunities for play, because I think also if we think about, you know, adult authorities often manage children's time. And in some aspects, that means that kids spend a lot of time in cars traveling to and from different events, or they spend a lot of time at an aftercare center, or they spend time trying to negotiate and find a place to play with their friends in their neighborhood. Um, and so I don't know, I just was, I was making a lot of connections to Beth's work, obviously. Um, but I do think that like play is such a tool for helping us to have conversations about equity, that maybe that's the way that we can also ensure that play is happening. If we frame it as a part of conversations about like anti-discrimination in various ways um, that we take up, like, why are we calling a girl bossy or why are we taking on this particular role where we think we have to um, tell people what to do or, you know, the language, the ways we use our bodies, all of those different things. Um, I don't know. I think that's a, the, another thing that has got me thinking in different ways. This is like a little side note, but I was thinking, uh, Cassie, of how children in face-to-face -face is sort of set or sometimes the parameters are implied, like kind of the rules are unsaid and we have to kind of figure the negotiate to figure them out. And sometimes they're children who just say what the rules are of how we're going to play. I was thinking of the ways kids did that in digital spaces where sometimes they were making something and they wanted collaborators. And I see that as kind of a way to like come play with me in this digital space. Um, but some children started to kind of at the front say like, here's the, don't like number one, don't erase anything that's already here. Sort of like trying to think about what are the, how are we going to negotiate the shared space? Um, and I think we, we see what that looks like in face, all different ways it looks like in face-to-face -face settings. And it was just really interesting to see the way, the ways that children tried to figure out on the fly, like, how do you do this in this digital space where anybody can come do anything in your book? But if you sort of set out sort of, here's my expectations, or here's kind of how, the, how's the, how I want us to play in real time, but also asynchronously, we might play together. Um, it was just fun to watch, you know, second and third graders try to figure that out so that it was it was the kind of play they were looking for. Um, and I think having some agency and having some say and kind of how you want people to play with you um, is an important notion just to have agency in that. I love that, that, that just this idea of play as a negotiated space, right? And, and, and just thinking about the possibilities that that presents then for getting kids to think about um, equality or equity. Um, how, you know, how do we make that playground a more equitable space for all of us or, or, you know, this, this corner of the classroom where everybody wants to play in free time. How do we, how do we, how do we ensure that everyone gets that, that, uh, their, their time there? Um, so I, I think, I, I think, again, like just so much possibility, right. In, in thinking in playful ways about every aspect of, of, of being together, um, in a classroom or, or in, in the world. And uh, I'll take um, take a little jump from from that, uh, doc, Dr. Lenters. And we've all talked about the importance of play for you know children and as well as adults. And um, Sarah and I also wanted to take a moment to recognize play in our own lives. So in uh, closing today, we'd love to know um, what your version of play is in your life right right now. So if you could each take a moment to share with us, we'd love to hear your version of play. I have a I have two new baby granddaughters. Well, they're they're one's a year old now, and one is is um, seven months. 
Um, and I was thinking, um, I think, was it Karen or Beth, um, about you know, kids bringing things to the screen and, and how my, how my um, the oldest granddaughter, little Lucy, already when we're FaceTiming, you know, goes off, crawls off to grab a, a toy or two that she knows um, she wants to show to me. And sometimes it's something that we have played with together in, in, in a physical space and sometimes it's something new. But already, right, there's just that sense of, of, of sharing um, through play and through playful objects is, is already happening in her mind. So she's, she's part of my play right now. And, uh, and as well as my, my granddaughter, who's a little farther away and a little younger and hasn't quite figured out that interaction with the screen. So Kim, I have a similar play interest. <laughs> I have uh, two grandchildren. And so I get lots and lots of videos of them doing all kinds of things. So I play a movie editor <laughs> and put everything into an iMovie and I add soundtracks and I add clips from popular culture that I think that they'll like. And so, you know, it becomes this sort of montage that's all blurry and I'm having lots of fun and learning some video editing skills on the side. <laughs> I mean, I love that so much because I've been thinking, I've been, I think I've gotten a lot of joy out of just like making things, even though, even if they're not like not that great, <laughs> I'll still do it. Um, and so like, naturally, I think I haven't necessarily been like growing up artistic or done a lot of like artsy kind of things or making a lot of things. And I think as an adult, I've seen like the value of that. And I think sometimes I've given myself the freedom to be like, doesn't have to be that good just as long as you try, right? And so I think that's like, I've been thinking about like how to infuse play into my work. And one of the things that um, we've been doing in our, our podcast is we just, I don't know, sometimes it's just ridiculous. We don't even know what we're doing. <laughs> um, but I think it's just like the act of like playing in that space has been like really enriching for me. And so now my question is like, how do I make my work more fun? Like, how do I incorporate play into those things? And maybe it is like, editing like films that I consider a film right like or maybe it's just like putting together these spaces where we can make things together so that's kind of what I've been doing I am putting out into the world that I want to play more outside um, I'm not a winter person I live in the mountains where it's winter a lot. And I finally see sun. I see um, daffodils coming up in my yard and I want to just, I know I usually get into it, but I want next week's spring break and I'm putting out into the world and I'm going to spend lots of time outside each day. Cause for me, that is the kind of play. Um, I have lots of digital play, but for me getting away from the screen, the seat, I spend lots of time in every day um, just to enjoy spring and to be outside and be with people. Um, so yeah, playing outside is my joy, but also one that I want to make more space for in the coming weeks and months. Um, I appreciate that 
a lot. I want to say that it's probably not really winter there, Beth, in comparison to what Kim and I are I dealing know, with. But... I'm sure it's not. It's not. I see your pictures. We it does snow here, which for North Carolina, like these people think it is like legit winter, but it is not. It's not Canada. No. The fact that you have daffodils, like what? We don't. We we don't have that at all right now. Um, but I second that. I'm not a huge fan of winter, but I do really like playing outside. Um, and as I mentioned, COVID, man, real restrictions here in Canada forever. So I've had a lot of outdoor play in the time of COVID, which I think is really great. Um, but I think I've also had a lot of like play and time sort of without commuting because we're still fully online. Um, getting to like play again in the kitchen. So like lots of baking um, and lots of like new recipes and things um, and kind of stretching myself in different ways, which has been really fun. Um, I also want to give a shout out because Haney didn't actually name her podcast, which is the Pop and Play podcast, which season two should be dropping sometime soon because she keeps promising me it's going to drop. So everyone should also check out the Pop and Play podcast, please. I'm just struck at the connections between making and playing, which I think that's another blurriness. So interesting. And I just have to say, connected to that, we had a child who told us who didn't call it making books, but he called it doing books. And I've been thinking a lot about that, that like it's not writing books, composing books, even making books, but like doing, um, being what children really take away or what's meaningful to them about producing text. So making and doing more of that. This has been such a fabulous discussion and conversation. Thank you all so much to our amazing uh, guests to be able to be featured on this episode of Play Literacies uh, for the Writing and Literacy SIG. Um, please feel free to follow or interact or reach out to our amazing guests and panelists and we are so grateful for their time uh, and amazing uh, considerations today. So thank you all so much.